0: Hi and welcome to the Active Travel Podcast, a brand new podcast brought to you by the Active Travel Academy. It's part of the University of Westminster in London and works in collaboration with people from inside and outside the university. I'm Laura Laker. I write about cycling and walking as a journalist, and I work with the Active Travel Academy on this podcast, among other projects. We have Robin, Robin, Robin. <laughs> Robin, We have uh, Robin Lovelace with us uh, for the second half of our two-parter on data in active travel. Robin is Associate Professor of Transport Data Science at the University of Leeds Institute for Transport Studies. Um, Robin is a geographer and environmental scientist by training with expertise in geographical information systems, data analysis and modelling. And that and his knowledge and love of active travel helped to him co-produce the rapid cycle way prioritization tool with Dr. Joey Talbot. And he's here to talk to us about that today. Welcome, Robin. Great to have you on the podcast.
1: Hi, Laura. Hi, everyone listening.
0: So podcast time. How's, how's your week been so far?
1: it's been a good week it's it's been a great week because i feel weight off my shoulders after this very intense contract with the department for transport to develop the rapid cycleway prioritisation tool and the certainly the infrastructure side of it has to be done in a in a very tight schedule but the same is is on the research side we were kind of round the clock to go from a prototype to national deployment in four weeks so i think a lot of the covid19 response stuff especially in the medical sector has been very very impressive and i'm so glad that um we delivered something that hopefully will be useful and this week i've got my head down in marking so so it's gone into a more kind of tranquil routine of working from home but yeah, I think it's been a it's been a good week um here in North Leeds where I'm based. <laughs>
0: Hi. Um can you just start by telling us a bit about the ITS Institute for Transport Studies?
1: Yeah, sure. So ITS is a long-standing research department focused on transport. I think it's one of the longest standing, if not the longest standing in the UK and certainly the largest in terms of uh postgraduate taught um and we have a long history of engagement with policy makers and doing high impact research so it's yeah very much it feels like the place to do transport policy research Um, it's had a huge influence on transport planning both in terms of the kind of established um, motorized transport planning but increasingly there's stuff on transport decarbonization and active modes which is uh, what I'm interested in the other thing I should say is that um, ITS is part of the University of Leeds and it's quite unique in a way because It's one of the few universities that's got a really big quantitative geography department and it's also got a transport department. And as someone who's at that interface, it's a good place to be because you've got both sides and they can be kind of mutually reinforcing.
0: And so at the moment, there's obviously an enormous push for a new kind of infrastructure on our roads in terms of cycling, pop up cycling lanes and pop up walking infrastructure. And you've had your your been up to your neck in this project for the last four weeks. It sounds like, and have only really just just come out. Uh, so, so the, what we're here to talk about today is uh, the RCPT, which which is using data to identify roads with the highest cycling potential, which is those that can carry the most cycling trips and those with enough width to accommodate new protective cycleways. And it's really cool. It's got this interactive map, hasn't it? And it's got um, different layers. It's got the existing cycleways, which are which are quite often sort of disconnected, disjointed, um, mixed quality. And then you've got the top-ranked cycleways, which is where the greatest demand for cycling is. Uh, cohesive network, which is where you link them all together. Roads with spare lanes, and then roads with an estimated width of more than ten meters. And how how did you go about doing this? Because it's quite it's quite a task isn't it when you look at the the maps of the UK and then you zoom in and there's all these different colored lines that you can click on it's it's quite a it's quite a thing you've produced
1: yeah so it we certainly had a very clear brief I think it's useful to have general purpose tools to inform transport policy because transport shouldn't be seen in isolation modes of travel like walking cycling cars buses shouldn't be seen In isolation, so in the long term, I'm actually in favour of quite general tools. But the Rapid Cycleway prioritisation tool, it was really developed to tackle a very particular question, which was how to invest most cost-effectively the uh, 250 or part of the 250 million pounds that's part of the emergency active travel fund. And that was only announced, I think maybe it was the 9th of May when this was announced by Grant Shapps. And it was suddenly clear that councils needed something on which to uh, base their submissions. Um, I think another bit of background is the fact that new statutory guidance has been created by the Department for Transport to support Um, the COVID-19 response so um, it's not just the funding it's also the uh, statutory guidance and this is quite a big departure from the status quo in terms of transport planning so for the first time ever to my knowledge anyway uh, the Department for Transport has provided advice on what to do Um, in terms of creating extra space for walking and cycling. And it specifically said that there should be uh, road space reallocation. And that's something that hasn't been on the table, so to speak. So most of the tools that I've been involved with are assuming that you are going to build new infrastructure either parallel to or in a separate place from the existing roads. Whereas this is very much focused on road space reallocation Um, and it's designed to inform rapid decision-making. So rather than this tendency of making tools more complicated, we needed to make the tool simpler so that people could uh, use it to inform their policies as quickly as possible. So, Uh, That's the kind of policy context. There's also a bit of an advocacy angle because the first early prototype of the work was done in collaboration with Cycling UK and we did a sketch up. Well, we did some data analysis of major cities in England and we found that most of them have major roads that have this kind of spare space for cycling. So the idea actually came from an advocacy angle we did a bit of a description of the methods and the Department for Transport picked up on this and eventually, yeah, commissioned this research to support that um, Emergency Active Travel Fund.
0: Mm. And it's striking, isn't it, when you look at the maps that you've produced, all of these dark blue lines that you see across different cities um, that represent the top-ranked cycleways that could be built. Mm. um, And they are they are everywhere and 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 like you say it just allows a council to look at um look at a map of of the roads that they look after and say this is where this blue line is where a cycleway needs to be to get the most people travelling for cycling trips um so the the data behind the map that was a mixture of things, wasn't it? It was the propensity to cycle tool, which is another thing that you've worked on, which um, takes data on which journeys people are doing where and then and then kind of works out which of those journeys could be cycled. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, so the the tool is very much building on the strong foundations of previous work. So um, essentially, there's two main input data sets. One of them is on cycling potential at the road network level. So that is every cyclable road more or less um, across the country has got a level of cycling potential that we have calculated in a great multidisciplinary and multi-university team, um, including Rachel Aldred at the University of Westminster, James Woodcock at the University of Cambridge, and Anna Goodman at London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. And that is really important for long-term strategic planning. But if you have a very specific uh, need to identify where you've got extra space to, to to make more space for walking and cycling, you also need uh, data on the infrastructure that you've got in your city. And that's where the other side of the coin, which is the infrastructure side, comes in. And as you say, we worked on a previous project, which is called the Cycling Infrastructure Prioritization Tool, lots of acronyms, (laughs) um, and that contains estimates of road width. And then we also took data from OpenStreetMap that gives you um, the number of lanes on the roads according to uh, citizen contributors. And we put those three together and we basically found a way to group together roads to identify continuous sections that may be strong candidates or at least promising candidates at an early stage in the planning process to look at to see if they would be feasible for uh, these pop-up interventions and it was an amazing project because as we were developing the tool these pop-up cycleways were going in and myself and joey in particular kept an eye on where they were going in and how they were matching with our uh, tool. So it's quite exciting. We could say, oh, in Jamaica Road, there's been new plans for a cycleway in London, another one in Bristol, and we were kind of doing this um, data analysis on the fly. It was a a very exciting time, and we also ensured that we had quite close contact with local authorities when we were developing it and also um, having this kind of vital... Uh, sense checking so a good example of this is Wakefield Road in Huddersfield where one of my colleagues uh, lives near and he, he was saying that I really think that your tool should be flagging up something here and we looked at and basically found a bit of a kind of bug in the algorithm that we changed and then it kind of flagged up that particular road and all other roads that were like it So um, compared with the work that we did with Cycling UK, that was only looking at roads on which we had a spare lane. Uh, And by that, we mean any road where there was at least two lanes of traffic going in one direction. And that means that you you can take out an entire lane without affecting the navigable network from the perspective of a car which makes things simpler from a kind of transport planning perspective, especially if you want to act quickly. But we also added in this additional parameter of width where we classified roads as having spare width if they were over 10 meters wide, which is probably Mm. close to the minimum of what you want your carriageway width if you're going to put in protected cycleways on both sides of the road. So, combine those two things the cycling potential and road width and spare lane data and then use some data analysis tools that took some refinement to firstly group together road segments into cohesive uh, groups that could form part of a coherent network and then rank them in terms of cycling potential and the result as you say is now freely available online at sip.bike forward slash rapid primarily transport planners are using this to inform their thinking about pop-ups but as we've seen online anyone can go and just have a look and use that to inform discussions about how to um, respond to Uh, COVID-19 on the transport network and this specific question of how can we create extra space for walking and cycling
0: yeah and it's it's arguably particularly useful for um councils who don't have uh, some of them some councils have created local cycling walking infrastructure plans or lc as they're known but uh many haven't and this is particularly helpful for those ones if they haven't already gone through this process of saying well which roads could have a would need a bike lane in terms of the trips that people would be doing by bike and then which have got the space so they can just look at it and you, know, you talked about um citizen contributions and and a major thing of part of this is that it's people can feed into it can't they they, they can get involved via widenmypath.com you can suggest locations for cycleways and wider pavements and your data feeds into that somehow I yeah think.
1: so this actually links to a point made by David David MacArthur in the previous podcast in the series he was saying that a big challenge facing uh, researchers and also public transport planners is A lot of the best data sets that we have are actually licensed in a way that it's difficult, even for people who can get access uh, because you're an academic or because you work for a local authority. Um, It's very difficult to use that data to inform wider debate because I can access ordnance survey data, for example. But if I can't put that out in a tool, it's difficult to inform the decision making process, which as part of the democratic process, has to have uh, many, many different people involved. So that is certainly one of the uh, great things about the tool, because it's primarily based on OpenStreetMap data, which has an open data license. We could publish the data sets, and that allows anyone to do what they want with the data download it you can do additional analysis and i know some local authorities are certainly uh, doing that Uh, um, another thing that happened because it's open data is that yeah like you say the the people behind widenmypath.com added it as an additional layer into this pre-existing kind of citizen science mapping place. So where you've got an automatically generated kind of top-down approach to planning, which is what we've done in the Rapid tool, you can then enrich that data set by looking at what people have got to say on specific roads. So if, for example, you have a more promising route that goes parallel to one of the uh, roads flagged by the tool but not actually on it people can say well actually this would make more sense to have it away from the traffic and those kind of things are are happening at the moment so yeah the open data angle is certainly an important part of what we've done and in a way they're the two sides of the same coin that we've got the very much data-driven Uh, top-down approach but you also need this bottom-up citizen science approach and when the two come together that's quite powerful and I think uh, local authorities will now have quite a rich evidence base including other things like cycle counters and um, obviously engagement with the wider community to inform their decisions so I'm, I'm quite hopeful that the infrastructure that goes in as a result of this Emergency Active Travel Fund will be quite good and hopefully a bit better thanks to our tool and com.
0: Yeah, Uh, yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? I remember the um, there's something similar in London, the strategic cycling analysis, and there was some scepticism about it when it first came out. Andrew Gilligan, who was the cycling commissioner um, of London and is now Boris's cycling advisors, he said, well, you can see where people want to cycle, just look out the window. But it has, has actually, and I wrote an article for The Guardian about his kind of comments and other people's comments on it, but it has actually proven for campaigners, for example, to say, well, these are the top 10 highest demand, unmet demand routes in London and going to their councils and saying this is where you need to be building the cycle routes and here's the evidence to show why and, and the kind of impact that that will have. And you said yourself... That transparency leads to better decision making. And I guess this citizen science uh, thing is, is part of it. And it allows people to take the data, it comes alive a little bit more, and to play with it and to come up with things. Different people have different expertise. And there's a lot of passion in the cycling community, isn't there? You know, people want to get other people on bikes. They realize how good it is and they kind of want to get involved themselves. And we see a lot of, um, we've got a lot of evidence around why cycling is a good thing, and yet not a lot happens. And this is almost another tool in the arsenal, isn't it? And just, you know, the the evidence of why it's good, but also where it needs to be built. So you said that um, you've seen some of that citizen uh, involvement in the tool since it was launched. Have you had sort of feedback from local authorities?
1: So I certainly fed into the decision making process because I'm on a, a kind of citizen advisory group for uh, with Leeds City Council. And it's been really interesting to see how they've created this uh, new forum that contains um, academics and advocates and also uh, councillors and we've each been able to input ideas and to some extent hold them to account so just earlier this afternoon I saw some feedback from someone on that group that's in open discussion with the council and they actually had a ride on Kirkstall Road which is one of the routes that has been flagged up by our tool and I'm very happy to say has received new segregated cycleway. However, um, she flagged up that there was, that there were still issues with it. Obviously when you do things very quickly, it's unusual to get things perfect the first time round. So she sent round photos and said, yeah, I think this is a problem. There's loads of old leaves in the road here and also parts of the pop-up cycleway are quite narrow and um, I've just been looking at the design manual for roads and bridges which clearly states that the desirable minimum width for cycleways um, cycle lanes which are painted lines is uh, two meters but when you have light segregation which also creates a potential hazard for cycling with those even with those ones the recommended minimum width is 2.5 metres. So I think it's one thing to have strong evidence, but the to some extent, now we're at this stage and we have a lot of good evidence. We have a lot of, um, in most cities, there's quite a movement to get these going. The devil will be in the detail and it's the design standards that actually come out. So at this stage, I think to a large extent, yeah, that's, that citizen engagement is really important and the ability of local authorities to adapt and to change their designs based on feedback will be key to seeing how used and how high quality these new cycleways are in the long term um so yeah i think for for most people probably the best way to get the tool and to see everyone else's comment and to get involved is probably through widen my path yeah
0: it's a nice map isn't it you you can just sort of go on there and click on it and there's little bicycle symbols and there's little shoe symbols for walking and then there's bits where people have said they need more space for
1: yeah and and you and you can type in you can kind of go into whatever town you like and i think the example of kirkstall road is is really shows that the best people to give feedback on a particular piece of infrastructure or or even an infrastructure plan are the people who actually use it day to day, so. I would really recommend um everyone to take a look and think about what you know the great thing about the tool is because you can actually imagine what you would like to have and make suggestions on that it's also got the upvote capability so you can look at yeah. rather than duplicating oh we need a cycleway on this road that uh would clearly benefit from a cycleway you can in addition kind of upvote on them and one of the amazing things is um that yeah they've had over 30,000 interactions with this map and it's only been up a short while and I think that shows that there's this really strong latent demand to get involved in transport planning and to me it highlights the fact that it's quite fundamental that transport planning is actually part of the democratic decision making process it's about the public allocation of resources so At some level, it must be informed by the citizens. And usually, historically, that's been done in quite a narrow and prescribed way where you put out a consultation and then it's closed and only certain people contribute. Whereas this citizen science aspect really broadens it out and allows many more voices to come in and much more diversity of opinion. Um, So that's great. But I think the combination of that and objective data which is our role in in this is, yeah, a really uh, powerful combination. But I certainly urge listeners to go out and give it a try. And I've added a, a couple of comments on there for my area. So, um, yeah, hopefully local authorities will pick up on this and use it that's another question
0: yeah um whether yeah whether whether they're looking well uh, i guess um i guess another thing you can do is flag that to your local um your local councillors but 30,000 in a week and a half is is really an astonishing number it's it is it is so easy to use isn't it and I've had these conversations before about the way that we discuss particularly cycling new cycling routes and um often the sort of meetings that are held around um, what's going to happen or what's being proposed are held at sort of times when people with young families say are putting the kids to bed or they're just you know people with busy lives don't have time to attend Meetings in person, and so it does uh, widen it out a bit more, and gives gives people who will benefit, you know, people with busy lives, people with young kids, maybe, um, the option to say, well, actually, this bit of my street's dangerous, the pavement's too narrow, um, I'd like this two way for cycling, or all of those things. It's just super easy just to click on, or like you say, you can like other people's comments, and and so you can see one comment has like twenty likes or something, and it's you know, you're not the only one that's thought that about that particular location.
1: Yeah. And another thing to say on that is I think that the com isn't designed to replace existing structures for engagement. So it would be to use in addition to the usual way of um, communicating. And that's the same concept with tools such as the rapid cycle way prioritization tool. the propensity cycle tool which our new rapid tool builds on it's certainly designed to complement not replace existing processes and and i think at the moment local authorities have so much to deal with the fact that there's now a national well certainly in england we'd like to extend it to other countries evidence-based that can mean that they can make good rapid decisions based on evidence more more quickly so yeah and the more citizens that get involved and kind of try to highlight the evidence to a broader range of people as possible the better and i've seen loads of examples it's um, been really good just seeing on twitter for example i'm from hereford so seeing people flagging up cycleways in worcester saying look this matches the cycle campaign's perception of where you have need for pop-up cycleways and then using that to try and get a debate going in the local authority so yeah i think certainly better decisions can be made when more people are involved and certainly when more evidence is available i think there is a danger that if there's too much evidence that it becomes overwhelming but the the good thing about these interfaces is they kind of condense down a lot of information into a map so you can make sense of it all
0: yeah like here's the line on the map this is where the bike route this is where you'd be best off building your first bike route this is where you need to do more routes to make a network and it is it's just very simple isn't it
1: yeah and and that's another thing as academics we like to always make things more complicated and add Mm -hmm. features and refine the model but with the rapid tool because it had a different purpose we wanted to say okay let's condense all of this information down to literally the top ranked cycleways and I should say on that you can also rank it not just by cycling potential but by uh, the continuous length of the uh, road as well so if your priority is to build slightly longer distance routes you can also use it to try and find uh, continuous sections but like with any data-driven approach no no data set is perfect so it's got a number of limitations
0: it's not just a short-term thing obviously you know we can this can keep being used in the long term there's there's going to need to be a, a gradual rollout of ideally of a, of a cycle network across the country not only in towns but linking in between so um I guess it could just keep on keep on going couldn't it Um in terms of Areas for further study. You mentioned you like the idea of general tools. Do you mean that across different transport modes, not just cycling?
1: Yeah, definitely. So, like many areas of government, transport planning tends to be a bit compartmentalised and even tribal in some cases. So, it, I've seen various examples of local authorities where you have the active travel team that's kind of put in a box and then they don't often talk to the highways people um and then that you've got the the bus people in london i know uh, and and there's not enough cross modal communication and i think that's bad for everyone so regardless of uh which mode of transport you use it's certainly important to have uh joined up networks so that public transport so uh, connects well to walking and cycling networks so um that's a, certainly something that i'm aware of and being the lead developer of the um, propensity cycle tool which is just focused on one mode i'm acutely aware of the need to broaden it out to become more multimodal so yeah. that's just a kind of policy need uh, that i've seen um yeah, yeah. and i think uh like taking into account walking and cycling, like walking is the foundation, I think, of a healthy transport system. And ensuring that walking and cycling are kind of taken into account together, I think is really important. So that's Mm -hmm. something that I'd like to look into more in the future.
0: Yeah, and it doesn't always have to be big things, does it? I think one of the most successful investments that the government's made in the last sort of 10 years is is cycle parking at railway stations something that's like super simple but just allows people to take a you know to ride a bike to their commuter train and then and then get on it um was there anything else that you wanted to say that you feel like we've s- skipped over or not covered or- yeah
1: yeah i i think i think it's worth uh because beginning i was talking about the tools focus on uh cycling potential and this idea of spare space and i think it's worth zooming in a bit on the concept of spare space I mean this Mm -hmm. was developed early on earlier in the lockdown when road traffic levels hadn't rebounded they have rebounded a bit but the evidence that I've seen suggests that they are still below uh, pre-COVID-19 levels and um, there's also evidence of many people switching to permanent working from home so Mm -hmm. The the long-term implications for the transport system are still uncertain. And in that context, I think it is good to think about why you might want to focus on road space reallocation in particular. And there's three broad reasons. The first is when you're looking at roads that are big and have this spare space, they tend to be along arterial routes where you've got high potential Um, especially in Leeds there's some key desire lines that are very heavily reliant on bus use so if you're aiming to uh, free up capacity on those busy public transport networks building where there is high latent potential which tends to be on those big arterial routes um, is one reason. The second reason is that the nature of the cycleways that you construct themselves so you can build a big cycleway and to allow physical distancing on um, these big roads that and cycleways that have been created by reallocating a lane of traffic to cycling and then finally it's about the long-term change that you mentioned this is part of a long longer aim and one of the main reasons for developing the the tool is that we i think should probably soon start to move away from the idea of pop-up cycleways just to new cycleways many of these will become permanent and the better we can design them and the better that we can place them where there is most latent demand the more chance they will have of being used in the long term so
0: yeah, because the government money is specifically in the 250 million for the the Emergency Active Travel Fund is the first tranches for pop-up cycle lanes and the second it's explicitly for stuff that's going to be longer term. Yeah, it?
1: exactly. And I think the Overton window, so to speak, has shifted <laughs> so that things that weren't necessarily on the table are now being discussed yeah. and are actually priorities. And a great example of that is this idea of low traffic neighbourhoods and road space reallocation that would not be discussed um, pre-COVID-19. But it to me, I think this could be a bit of a crossroads in terms of active transport in the UK. And it's really um, exciting to see it all happening and to have so much evidence, like more evidence uh, than ever before, not only of the benefits of walking and cycling, but where we need to intervene for um maximum benefit and it's certainly exciting to be a small part of that process
0: yeah certainly in terms of the main roads is there's a reason they're they're so wide and well used it's because they take people where they where they want to go isn't isn't it this is just as a final thought <laughs> and quite often yeah, we kind of want but... to put cycling out of the way but then I guess there's another argument about whether we want to actually cycle on main roads next to motor traffic but that's probably an
1: yeah uh, yeah that. but I, I, no but I think it is actually relevant to this so Um, When you put in pop-up cycleways, um, there are ways to change the speed limit through um, experimental or temporary traffic regulation orders, but also, and this is something that came out of a, a seminar that we did last week on the tool, which is that when you put in a cones or other infrastructure, although the legal speed limit may be unchanged, the design speed changes and drivers yeah. do actually respond to infrastructure. And, and and this is something that I see, I mean, my, everyone's got their personal kind of uh, dream cycleway. Mine is Scott Hall Road um, in Leeds, which is a, a big dual carriageway with a 40 mile an hour speed limit. And currently it does not have a cycleway on it. And I just think that reducing that speed limit could do so much Um, so it's not always just about infrastructure it's about driver behavior and a whole range of other things and this tool uh, going back to the limitations it can only do one thing which is kind of flag up these arterial routes that have got high cycling potential but you need a a very broad range of interventions I think including uh, road traffic speed reduction um, to make um, the transport networks more friendly for everyone
0: yeah great thanks for robin for coming on it's great to talk to you
1: fantastic yeah thanks for having me and yeah i look forward to uh kind of seeing how this rolls out and maybe even using some of the infrastructure that's going in that will hopefully be informed by, by the various tools that are going out so um yeah thanks a lot and just For listeners, check out the uh, wordinmypath.com and the tool. And if you're interested in the data side of things, uh, by all means, download the data. And we are happy to take any kind of questions um, on the website where we developed it, which is um, github.com forward slash SIPT. If there's any developers out there who want to get involved in the kind of technical side of things.
0: Great. Thanks, Robin. You've been listening to the Active Travel Podcast. You can find us online on our website at blog.westminster.ac.uk forward slash ata forward slash podcast. We're on most podcasting hosts and you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram, both at active underscore ata. Let us know what you think. Drop us a tweet or an email at Active Travel Academy at westminster.ac.uk.